So today we're going to take a look at arguments from distributive justice for duties of well-off people to poor people in other countries. And we talk about justice in a wide variety of contexts. So there's various kinds of justice worth distinguishing. So when we talk about just punishment, that kind of adjustment, that, that kind of justice rather, is often described as a retributive justice. Uh, if people are justly punished, that's a matter of uh, justice in retribution. So too, people also talk about compensatory justice. So if you've wronged someone, uh, the just thing to do is to compensate them, in many contexts at least. Again, some people also talk about procedural justice. So if there's an agreed procedure or set of rules for arriving at a decision, it can be an injustice in certain contexts anyway if you disregard those rules or break them in coming to the decision. And part of this family of notions is also what's often called distributive justice. This concerns the justice of the distribution of the benefits and burdens of economic activity. So it's not uncommon to hear someone complain uh, or object that the way in which the economy, the political system, distributes benefits and burdens of economic activity is unjust. So that certain people are unfairly disadvantaged by economic arrangements. And indeed it's very natural to say that this is one problem that exists uh, in a very severe form on a global scale. So global inequality, notoriously, uh, is vast. Just for example, uh, according to one measure, in 2004, the two and a, approximately 2.5 billion severely poor people accounted for only 1.67% of all household expenditures during that year. By contrast, the billion or so people in rich countries accounted for 81% of all household expenditures during that year. So the inequalities on the global scale are obviously vast. And it's natural to think, as I say, that that constitutes an injustice, that a global economy that permits inequalities on that scale is treating some people very, very unjustly. Now, this is not to say that the injustice involved, if any, is the worst thing about global poverty. And indeed, many people who think that we have duties of justice to poor people in other countries may or, not, may or may not believe that we have other duties as well. And they may or may not believe that the other duties are less weighty than the duties of justice. And it's worth also thinking about the fact that, it's worth though thinking about duties of distributive justice in addition to the duties of beneficence or humanitarian duties that we considered the possibility of in the last two lectures uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, you might think that if we have duties of justice to poor people in other countries, 
that requires something different from whatever duties of beneficence or humanitarian duties we may have. So for example, you may think that uh, well-off people have a humanitarian or a beneficence duty to fulfill the basic needs of people in other countries, but that it's possible for their basic needs to be fulfilled while, while there still is significant injustice. So there might be very unequal remuneration for comparable work from country to country. Even if everybody's basic needs are met, you might think that still constitutes an injustice that morally demands fixing. Another reason why it's worth thinking about whether we have duties of distributive justice is that, at least according to many, uh, it's plausible to think that it's morally permissible to compel people to fulfill their duties of justice. So, obviously, duties of retributive justice, the court system is a good example of a case in which people are compelled to fulfill those sorts of duties, or at least the justification for compelling them to do certain things could be given in moral terms, in terms of duties of justice. And on a domestic scale, you might think that this is one of the principal justifications for taxation is that people have duties of distributive justice to fellow members of their society and that taxation is morally permissible because it's morally permissible when a duty of justice is in question to compel someone to fulfill it. So within the discussion, the literature on global distributive justice, we can broadly distinguish between two main camps. So one camp is called cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism. And this is a term that's used in a variety of subtly different ways from writer to writer. I'm going to understand a cosmopolitan view of justice as any view according to which well-off people have duties of distributive justice to people in other countries. You're an anti-cosmopolitan if you deny that, or you're an anti-cosmopolitan at least about distributive justice if you deny that, insofar as you deny that. And one of the reasons, one of the main divides within cosmopolitanism, and indeed within anti-cosmopolitanism, is this. So you might think that on a domestic scale, within a society, within a state, what gives us duties of justice, distributive justice to fellow members of our society is the fact that we stand in certain political or cultural or economic relations to those people. And a big divide within cosmopolitanism is between cosmopolitans who argue that we stand in relevantly similar relations to people in other countries and that that's what gives us duties of distributive justice to them and people who say that our duties of distributive justice are not based on relations like that, not based on relevantly similar social, political, economic relations to people in other countries. The thought of the first school is that with global interconnectedness, globalization, and so forth, we now stand in relevantly similar relations to people in other countries as we traditionally have stood to members of our own country, citizens of our own country. And one of the first 
people in the contemporary debate about this, at least, to make this argument is a philosopher named Charles Bites, who argues that we should treat the global basic structure of relations, excuse me, in the same way that we ought to treat the domestic basic structure of economic, political, and social arrangements from the point of view of distributive justice. Bites argues in particular that the global economy ought to be governed by John Rawls's difference principle of distributive justice. Now, if you're familiar with any political philosophy whatsoever, you will have come across John Rawls's book, A Theory of Justice. Enormously influential theory. And so I'll just say a little bit about that because it's very important background to discussions about global distributive justice. So Rawls considers what it would take for what he calls the basic structure of a society to be just. The basic structure of a society, says Rawls, consists of that society's political constitution and major economic and social arrangements. Some examples he gives are having a competitive market, if the society has a competitive market, and allowing private property, for example, in the means of production. Rawls focuses his question on this basic structure, the political constitution and major economic and social arrangements. He does not claim that he's providing principles of justice for uh, private interactions between people or for smaller organizations within the state only focused on the basic structure. And the core idea of Rawls's view is this. The thought is that inequalities are unjust only if they disadvantage someone. If inequalities can be to the benefit of the least advantaged or the worst, worst off in society, then they should be permitted as a matter of justice. That's the core notion. So justice doesn't require strict equality of wealth or of other goods. Necessarily, it only requires it if the worst off are disadvantaged by inequality. So we can permit inequality if, for example, we need to offer incentives to people to work and to provide innovations that will benefit the least advantaged members of society. We can pay them more if that's required in order to bring those benefits to the least advantaged members of society. And that is the key thought behind his principle of distributive justice, what's become known as the difference principle. And the difference principle applies this notion to social and economic inequalities. So the thought is that social and economic inequalities are to be permitted if, and only if, they are to the benefit, uh, to the greatest benefit of the least advantaged. Now there are a few other qualifications to the difference principle, which you can read in Rawls, uh, but which are not important for our purposes here. And those have to do with savings and equality of opportunity.
but you can take a look at that yourself. The key thought is that social and economic inequalities are to be arranged so that to the greatest benefit of the least advantaged members of society. And his principal argument for this is by means of a familiar device in the history of political philosophy, and that's the device of a social contract. And so he argues that the right principles of justice for the basic structure of society are those that would be agreed to by free and rational people concerned to further their own interests but placed behind what he calls a veil of ignorance. A veil of ignorance is his metaphorical way of describing a state of ignorance about one's own natural or social advantages, one's own conception of the good, and even of one's psychological propensities. So the basic thought is that the right principles of justice for a society, for the basic structure, should not give anyone an advantage or disadvantage on account of morally arbitrary characteristics. Examples of morally arbitrary characteristics include things like your race, your social class, uh, your religion, and so forth. We think it's quite obvious that morally arbitrary characteristics like these shouldn't determine whether you get more income or wealth in society. The, the goods that are distributed directly by the basic structure of a society, such as income and wealth, should not be concentrated or be distributed unequally to people on the basis of morally arbitrary characteristics. Now Rawls notably argues that natural talents such as natural intelligence and so forth are also included among morally arbitrary characteristics. So he thinks our common notion of what's morally arbitrary in a person is uh, a bit narrow and that it includes more than what is commonly taken into account when we think of whether the basic structure of a society is just. And so that's the rationale for saying that the principles of justice for a society are those that would be chosen by people ignorant of their morally arbitrary characteristics, who are concerned only to further their own interests, and who are free and rational. Basic thought being that if no one knows what their morally arbitrary characteristics are, then no one will agree to principles for the society that give an advantage to people on account of morally arbitrary characteristics or conversely that disadvantage people on the same sorts of grounds. An analogy that Rawls uses here is with dividing a piece of cake. So a fair way of dividing a piece of cake is to get the person who divides it not to be the person who decides who gets the pieces. So if you don't know which piece you're going to get, you're going to make sure the cake is divided nice and evenly and fairly. <coughs> now it's not exactly like dividing a cake, of course, 
because, as before, it may be that if we permit inequalities in income and wealth, then the position of the worst off will be better than it would have been if we only allowed strict equality. So the basic thought is that if people were behind a veil of ignorance, having to choose the principles of justice for the basic structure of society, they would choose the difference principle. Because if they don't know what characteristics they have, and if they don't know the chances of them ending up with those characteristics when the veil is lifted, if you elaborate the thought experiment in that way, then they're going to choose those principles that make the position of the worst-off person as good as possible in respect of the, what he calls, social primary goods distributed directly by the basic structure. And these include income and wealth. That's really the key thought, that if you're ignorant of your morally arbitrary characteristics in this situation, in, under this veil of ignorance, you will choose the principles that make the position of the worst-off person as good as possible in respect of how the basic structure treats them. It would be irrational, in self-interested terms anyway, to choose principles that do not maximize the position of the worst-off if you have no idea what your chances of being that kind of person is or are. So that's the rationale, the principal rationale, he offers for saying that the difference principle is the right principle of justice for the basic structure of a domestic society. Now, in a theory of justice, Rawls very briefly considers international relations, uh, but he restricts the claim about the difference principle to domestic relations, to justice within a society. Charles Bites argues that the difference principle is applicable to the world as a whole. So in Bites's view, the just principles for the world as a whole should be such as to make the position of the worst off as good as possible. The inequalities permitted there should only be permitted if and insofar as they benefit the worst off. And he argues on this basis. So he says, Rawls rightly thinks that the difference principle and that justice applies to society because of the relations in which members of society stand to one another. So Rawls follows Hume in thinking of a society as a cooperative venture for mutual advantage, as Hume puts it. So the thought is that part of what it is to live in a society is to cooperate in various ways. And in particular, the major social institutions uh, help determine the, how the advantages of social cooperation are distributed to people. And it's in conditions like that that we have to ask what principles of dividing those advantages and disadvantages are just. Those are 
as Rawls puts it, the circumstances of justice, or at least some of the circumstances of justice. It's in cases like this when questions about justice and injustice of distributions arrive, arise. So as Bites puts it, anytime you have a cooperative scheme, you can ask, is it just or unjust? That question is applicable. And a cooperative scheme in Bites's view, or in, as Bites defines that term, is an institution or a practice in which social activity produces benefits or burdens that would not exist if the social activity did not take place. According to Bites, when that's the case, the question arises, how should we justly distribute these benefits and burdens? And Bites accepts Rawls's arguments for the difference principle. But what he says is, well-off people and poor people in different countries are members of many common cooperative schemes by this understanding of a cooperative scheme. So for example, there is international communication, travel, trade, aid, and foreign investment. There are financial and monetary institutions that regulate and influence international economic activity. There are international laws, treaties, and conventions regarding natural resources and investment. Bites was writing in 1979, uh, and you could, I'm sure, add quite a lot to that list uh, since that time. These institutions and practices produce benefits and burdens that would not exist without them, without the social activity occurring within them. To give some examples from Bites, he says, the global monetary system, for example, allows disturbances like price inflation in one country to be transmitted to other countries. The upper income classes of developing countries gain enormously from trade and foreign-owned firms operating in their countries. The political influence of foreign companies on developing country governments frequently leads to inegalitarian economic policies thus creating burdens on members of that society. International trade agreements affect trade barriers, creating more benefits and burdens for different countries. So he thinks it's dead obvious, and overwhelming amounts of evidence support the claim that well-off peoples in certain countries stand in the same cooperative schemes as members of poor countries and poor members of those countries. Consequently, the difference principle, as articulated by Rawls, applies to those schemes, and if we say that that's the right principle of justice for whatever scheme it applies to, then we should think that the basic structure of global society ought to be regulated by the difference principle. And that gives rise to a duty on the part of those who can undertake it to support the creation of structures that regulate the distribution of benefits and burdens according to the difference principle. So that's one argument for 
duties of well-off people, duties of distributive justice of well-off people to poor people in other countries. However, uh, other cosmopolitans disagree with Bites and argue that those sorts of relations aren't what give rise to duties of justice. Or at the very least, they're not the only thing that give rise to duties of distributive justice. And as an example of this line of thought, uh, I'm going to discuss Simon Caney's view, as presented in his book, Justice Beyond Borders. So Caney objects to views like Bites's that claim that we have duties of distributive justice when and because we stand in certain relations of this kind, institutional relations, economic relations, <coughs> and so forth, with members of other countries, citizens of other countries. And he, his argument is very simple. He says, if you're a Rawlsian, then you don't think that benefits and burdens should be distributed on account of morally arbitrary factors. So remember, that's a key notion in Rawls's view. Things like race, class, intelligence, so forth, insofar as you didn't choose them, are morally arbitrary. And it's unjust for a system to privilege certain people on account of those factors. Caney says, being a member of a certain cooperative scheme is morally arbitrary, just like those other factors. So he says, suppose that two people, equally hardworking, gifted, and with the same needs, just happen to belong to separate cooperative schemes. Claim is not that you can separate out cooperative schemes in quite that way in the actual world, but it's conceivable. Well, Bites' principle would potentially privilege and benefit one of those people far more than the other. Perhaps one cooperative scheme is much more wealthy, much wealthier, much more profitable than the other. And so, if the division of benefits and burdens is shared only among members of the same scheme, then the guys in that scheme are going to be much better off, simply on account of having been born in the right place, and that's not acceptable from a Rawlsian point of view. That's a morally arbitrary factor. It's pure luck that makes one of them much, much better off, potentially, than the other. So Caney and cosmopolitans like him reject Bites' brand of cosmopolitanism. In its place, they argue on a wide range of grounds. And the literature on this is very, very extensive. I've given a bibliography on the back of the handout uh, if you're interested in taking a look at some of this. One large strand within this is to argue that members, poor members of other countries, <coughs> indeed all human beings, have a human right to subsistence. So to freedom from malnutrition, freedom from diseases, and so forth. But just focusing on the human right to subsistence, Caney also is an example of a person who supports this sort of view. Caney 
argues, uh, adapting an argument presented by Charles Jones. I think the details of Caney's presentation are somewhat different from Jones's, but it is basically Jones's argument. He argues this. What is it that makes something into a human right? Most plausible account, on Caney's view, is that it, we have a human right to something only if and because it is an extremely important or fundamental human interest. So this is one large school of thought about the nature of rights. Is that rights exist in order to pr protect fundamental human interests. If you think about clear cases of human rights, such as the right not to be tortured, or the right to freedom of belief, rationale for regarding these as rights is that they protect fundamental human interests. If that's the right thing to say about human rights, then it should be very clear that there's at least a strong presumption in favor of saying that we have a human right to subsistence. Quite obviously, avoiding starvation, malnutrition, ill health and disease are fundamental human interests. So it's quite plausible to think, says Caney, that there is a human right to subsistence. Now, one question that any claim about human rights standardly faces is what duties does it give rise to? So many people who claim that there is a human right to something are often criticized if they don't specify who has a duty to protect or to ensure that that right is fulfilled or enjoyed. Caney is aware of this criticism, but he thinks Jones has provided us with the materials to get around it. So his thought is this. Yes, it's true that you may not be able to uh, ensure that some given individual's rights are protected or fulfilled, in another country, but if the existence of institutions of various kinds, political arrangements, economic arrangements, and so forth, are important or even necessary to those rights being protected or fulfilled, then this puts us in a position to say what your duty is. You have a duty to support, or to work for the creation of such institutions institutions that are in a position to protect their rights and to ensure that they are fulfilled. And that gives us an account of the kind of duty that well-off people have towards poor people in other countries if there is a human right to subsistence. They have a duty to support or to create institutions that protect these rights. Now there's a lot more that could be said about that. Uh, and indeed, there's a lot more that could be said about the various species of cosmopolitanism. But that's all I'll say about that here. What I want to get onto now uh, are the reactions to cosmopolitanism from people who deny that well-off people have duties of distributive justice to people in other countries. Now, as we'll see, many of these people don't deny that we have duties to poor people in other countries. 
they just deny that distributive justice applies to those relations, at least in the world as it is. One person who does this is Thomas Nagel. So Nagel's argument is sort of the mirror image of Bites's. So whereas Bites says we have duties to people in other countries because the relevant political, economic, social relations exist between us and them, Nagel says we don't have those duties because the relevant relations don't exist between us and them. And the relevant relations are these. So he says, what's special about living in a society with other people that gives rise to duties of distributive justice are two things. So first of all, a society demands of its members that, it's, that those members support the institutions of the society through which advantages and disadvantages are created and distributed. So for example, society demands of its members that they accept the laws of the society and obey those laws. <coughs> Thereby, they demand that their members support the institutions that create advantages and disadvantages. Key thing about this is that members of that society are not given a choice. So it's not voluntary whether you obey the law in the society that you happen to have been born into. Uh, you're not given the option of doing that or not doing that. That's one key feature of a society. Nagel highlights. Another key feature of society is that society makes its members responsible for the acts of that society. So governments act in the name of their citizens. It takes decisions in the name of its citizens. And if the society is a democracy, it gives its citizens some influence on those decisions. And therefore, it makes members of that society responsible for any arbitrary inequalities that that society's institutions permit or allow of. And once again, it doesn't give them a choice about this. It makes them responsible without asking their consent <coughs> to make them responsible. It may ask for their input on the decisions and so forth, but it doesn't give them the option to wash their hands of it. Uh, it doesn't ask their permission to act in their name. So these two features, Nagel thinks, require justification. So the demands that members of society make on other members through the institutions of the state is a relation that is, in the world as it is, unique to states, societies. To justify putting other people into these relations, to justify making them responsible for arbitrary inequalities that the society's institutions may permit, and to justify the demand that they support those institutions, that society has to be arranged so as to give the interests and opportunities of its citizens 
equal consideration in its decisions. So these demands, which you're not given any choice about, are justified only if the society making those demands gives everybody's interests equal consideration in its decisions. This, Nagel thinks, is why questions of distributive justice arise at a society level. Now, he thinks it could be the case that the world as a whole made demands on people in other countries, between countries. But he thinks in the world as it is, that's not yet the case. So he thinks that one society does not make these same demands on members of other societies. So members of other societies are not asked to accept and uphold the laws of a society. Nor indeed are those laws imposed in the name of members of other societies. Nagel does consider here the example of immigration laws. But he thinks this is not a counterexample to this claim, because he thinks immigration laws are simply enforced against members of other societies. They're not asked in the same way to uphold and accept the laws of the society that enforces those laws against them. And similarly, international institutions don't act, says Nagel, in the name of individuals. Rather, they act in the name of the states or the state instruments that have created those international institutions. So he thinks those key features of domestic society that make it appropriate to evaluate it in terms of its distributive justice or injustice don't yet exist on a world level. And he thinks that's a relevant difference between domestic and international affairs. Now another line of thought on the anti-cosmopolitan side is provided by John Rawls himself. So about 30 years after the publication of A Theory of Justice, Rawls wrote a book entitled The Law of Peoples, in which he considers principles of justice in the international realm. And this book is very fundamental to subsequent debates about distributive justice on a global level. Not least because Rawls denies that the difference principle should be applied to the world as a whole. So he argues against Bites and other cosmopolitans along those lines. So Rawls' theory has a number of components worth distinguishing. One claim he makes is that what he calls well-ordered peoples have a duty to assist what he calls burdened peoples. So well-ordered peoples are include liberal democracies and it's at least conceivable, he thinks, that they could include non-liberal societies provided those societies are arranged in certain ways. So he thinks that it's at least conceivable that a non-liberal society, a place that's not a liberal democracy, 
could respect the independence of other peoples, secure human rights for all their members, including the rights to the means of subsistence and certain basic needs, give citizens freedom of conscience and a substantial role in political decisions, and also to have a system of law that is seen as actually giving rise to moral obligations and not just seen as a series of commands imposed by force. He thinks a society could have all those features or people could have all those features without itself being a liberal democracy because he thinks it might, for example, combine with those features the feature of not granting equal rights to political participation to everyone. So it grants rights to political participation to everyone, but those may not be granted equally. So it may privilege certain religious groups in the awarding of certain political offices. And similarly, he thinks (coughs) such a society might not follow the principle of one person, one vote. Nevertheless, he thinks that if a society has all the desirable features that he mentioned, it merits toleration. And that's going to be a very key component of his argument. But his general thought is that principles of justice for the basic structure of relations between peoples (coughs) in the world are those that would be agreed to by representatives of liberal peoples behind a veil of ignorance, so as before, and which could also be accepted by decent non-liberal peoples. So decent is his term for non-liberal peoples that have the desirable characteristics that I just mentioned. And he thinks that one of the principles that would be agreed to by such peoples for international relations is what he calls a duty of assistance. Some peoples may not be able to have either a liberal or a decent political and social regime. I think the way he phrases it, a just or decent political and social regime. And he thinks that behind the veil of ignorance, representatives of decent non-liberal and liberal peoples would agree to adopt a duty to assist any society under those conditions to have a just or decent political or social regime. So they may be too poor, or they may be the victims of natural disasters, so on and so forth. In any case, a duty of assistance is a duty that would be adopted by the society of peoples as a whole to help these burdened societies become well-ordered, to enable them, as he puts it, to manage their own affairs reasonably and rationally. So he thinks that this is definitely a duty that one people has to another. But this is not a duty of distributive justice. Duty of distributive justice would apply continuously and would be regulating inequalities in wealth and income and would not have a target or cutoff point like the duty of assistance does. Duty of assistance has been fulfilled and requires no further action from other peoples once the burdened peoples have a just or decent 
political or social regime. And now he gives a number of reasons why he doesn't think liberal principles such as the difference principle should apply at a global level. One point he makes, which I won't get into in much detail, is just that he thinks once the duty of assistance has been fulfilled, the main reasons to reduce inequality within domestic society would no longer apply to global society, to the society of peoples. So he thinks, for example, that one reason to reduce inequality within a society is that it leads people to be stigmatized by other members of that society. But he thinks if you adopt his principles, then uh, there would be no just complaint for being or feeling stigmatized by other peoples. That's just one example. So he goes through a few of these and considers the reasons there are to reduce inequality within a society and thinks these wouldn't apply once the duty of assistance has been fulfilled. And it's worth noting here about the duty of assistance that this involves ensuring that everyone's basic needs are met around the world. So remember, among the features of decent peoples are that they recognize a right to subsistence and ensure that all members of the society have their basic needs met. So this is not a question of allowing anybody to starve. So even a world where just the duty of assistance was fulfilled would be very different from the world as it actually is. That's worth stressing in thinking about what Rawls is saying here. So he thinks that in such a world, the main reasons to worry about inequality within society would not apply internationally. But his primary arguments for not applying the difference principle globally have to do with toleration. So he thinks that decent non-liberal peoples are decent enough that other peoples would not be justified in either denying them respect or denying them significant room for self-determination. And he thinks that adopting a global difference principle or other liberal principles of distributive justice would involve denying respect to non-liberal peoples and to denying them significant room for self-determination. So on the respect side, he says, if we adopted a liberal principle of distributive justice, that would require sanctioning peoples that didn't obey it. But it's at least possible for there to be a decent non-liberal people uh, that would end up being sanctioned by or would require sanctioning if we adopted that principle. And that would be to deny them a measure of respect. And he thinks denying them that much respect requires very strong reasons to be justified. And he thinks the decent people is not bad enough to justify denying them that respect. That's one concern. And he says, consider also, liberal peoples differ in how egalitarian they are. Some are more egalitarian than others. But we don't think we should sanction liberal democracies who are less egalitarian on account of not being egalitarian enough. And he thinks we should extend the same kind of tolerance to what he calls decent non-liberal peoples. 
And the second point is that a global principle of distributive justice of the liberal kind would deny significant room for self-determination. And he gives a couple examples here. So the basic thought is that such a principle would require continuous wealth transfers from the better off people to the less well off people. So he says, consider two cases. There are two liberal or decent peoples, free, responsible, and able to make their own decisions. Suppose that one decides to industrialize and to save, while the other prefers a more leisurely or pastoral existence and doesn't decide to industrialize and save. In a few decades, the first people is twice as wealthy as the second one. A global difference principle or other egalitarian principle would require constant transfers from the industrialized people to the one that chose to remain pastoral and leisurely. And he says, given that these decisions were freely made and given that the duty of assistance has been satisfied, that seems wrong. That seems to interfere with the rights of the industrialized people to choose to industrialize. The other people freely chose not to. And he also gives an example of a people in a similar case, one of whom, uh, the women in one of whose societies choose to have fewer children than the other. In both cases, this is a decision freely made. But because of that, the one people uh, has much lower population growth and becomes much wealthier than the one which mu with much higher population growth. And he says again, if these decisions were freely and responsibly made and the duty of assistance is satisfied, everybody is either decent or liberal, it doesn't seem justified in transferring the wealth from the country that, with the lower population growth to the one with the higher. And again, it's worth stressing, this is a situation that's very remote from the actual world. It's not a case of letting anybody starve or anybody fall into severe poverty, even on account of decisions they chose to make. So that, in brief, is Rawls's take on international distributive justice. <coughs> He's been very heavily criticized by cosmopolitan liberals because, of course, much of the inspiration for cosmopolitanism came from Rawls's earlier theory of justice. And in particular, some of the most uh, numerous criticisms have come from Thomas Poggy. And next week, we're going to take a look uh, at Poggy's view and other arguments, uh, perhaps, as well, if we have time, that argue not on grounds... not exclusively on grounds of distributive justice that we have obligations to other people, but on grounds of harm, that we are responsible for harming people in other countries, poor people in other countries, and that for that reason, and it may or may not be a reason of justice, according to the theorist, we have obligations to compensate them or to ensure that the harm stops. Thanks very much.